HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. This is Coral, host of Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Katie Rue is the owner of Reception Bar, a self-proclaimed Korean-American bar in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. There you'll find inventive cocktails with even more inventive na- names, most notably Youngblood, Y-O-N-G. You can smell the metaphor there, right? Um, featuring not only Asian ingredients, but traditional combinations of ingredients found in Korean wellness beverages. The booze are plush and pink, and the glowy lighting feels very 80s Miami. She's here to talk with me about what it means to feel neither Korean nor American nor entirely Korean-American and what creative things can arise from that unique tension of identity. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start right with that. What does it mean to you to be Korean versus American versus Korean-American? And I guess one more is American-Korean. American-Korean? I haven't heard of that one before, <laughs> to <laughs> be honest. <laughs> where, where you sit on the spectrum. Um, I think it definitely was a question I had ever since... You know, you became aware of what it meant that I have a different ethnicity other than white. Um, And then the question comes in again when in my middle school, like seventh grade, I remember really distinctly all of a sudden in the school year, we had a lot of new immigrants coming in and not being super related to them. Um, But what I think I am is like, I feel like I am fully American, but I have a really strong Korean heritage that runs through my family, runs through me. Um, And I think that just kind of shapes who I am, and I think there are a lot of other people who have similar experiences to me, but also very different. I think it's a really vast, varying um, culture that exists now, and people are trying to find ways to not just define it, but to show what 
it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something we talked about uh, last episode where it's not only finding out that there are differences among Asian Americans, but even between the generations of Asian Americans. Um, 100%, yeah. Yeah, so where did you grow up? I grew up in um, a small town called La Mirada. Um, it's in LA County. Um, right now, actually, it's a really thriving Korean community, but when I was first there, it was mostly like Filipino, Hispanics, white. Um, and then, as I say, like all of a sudden over time, you see a lot of Koreans coming into that area. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a bit about your parents' immigration story um, and your relationship relationship to them while growing up? Sure. So they both came um, as children. So it was really my grandparents immigrating over. Um, On my mom's side, um, when when she was young, my grandpa was actually working in a lot of other um, Asian countries. And then he immigrated his whole family over to Georgia when she was in second grade. So she was like the only Asian people had ever seen. And people would literally like touch her and kind of like invade her personal space just because they'd never seen an Asian before. So I think that really like shaped her experiences and they immigrated over to from Georgia to SoCal. And then on my dad's side, they immigrated first over to Brazil. So there's a really big Korean community in Brazil and Argentina. And he was there in about middle school, I would say. And then by high school, he moved to D.C. and then to SoCal where he met my mom. Mm -hmm. So knowing your parents and your grandparents' history of being Asian in America, how did that influence your understanding of your own Korean-Americanness while growing up? Mm, I think that's like something really interesting to think about, I think, because it kind of changed over time. And I think a lot of it's also relation to like what my parents were trying to do. I think they held the brunt of um, the tension of what it meant to be Asian-American in America like they didn't have any accent at all, but they were discriminated for for what they look like, and they didn't want that to come down to us. So they made a decision to like not teach us Korean. So I don't speak Korean. I mean, I know like the names of food, things like that, um, but I don't think there is like a right or wrong answer. I think that they didn't know how people would come up and be more proud of their heritage and learn how to integrate them with themselves it was definitely like a survival level mm-hmm. like they were in LA before Koreatown really formed they were like in LA before the um, LA riots so um, I think a lot of it came from survival and I think they also wanted to like privately have a really strong Korean culture at home like we celebrated New Year's and like I would wear hanboks every year that's a traditional Korean clothing um And then as I got older, it was just kind of like, why is this so separate? Like, I don't need to separate my Korean-ness from my American-ness. It's totally me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I could also make up my own rules about, like, what that means to me. And I think that's what I try to, like, embody at Reception Bar. Mm -hmm. And so do you think having that distance has allowed you... We're getting really, really deep, really heavy, really quickly. um, But do you think that distance has allowed you to fully embrace your Korean-American-ness? Distance from what? Um, Not necessarily knowing the language or speaking the language and having that difficulty of quote-unquote assimilating growing up? Sorry, what was the question? Yeah, so did it make it easier for you to embrace that side of yourself later? Or did you feel like there was some sort of transformative period at one point? I think there was a transformative period for sure. So, I mean, I grew up in California. I think it was very diverse. I think that it was a... Like a place where you can be both and not have to like worry or question about it. It wasn't like in your face as much because there were so many other Korean Americans or Asian Americans there. Um, After college, I went to Berkeley, which is also, you know, very (laughs) Asian heavy. Um, 
I moved to Chicago and I think that was a huge culture shock for me. Like all of a sudden being like very a part of the minority, like being at a bar and people like, oh, the Asian girl and being like, oh, they're talking about me. Like mm -hmm. that was really strange. And just the way how people there viewed Asian-ness and then what they like already thought about me from just seeing my face. Um, so I think that was definitely like a transformative moment for me. And then coming to New York, um, seeing a lot of other people who had other, um, came from other cultures, but then them thinking about it and actually doing something about it kind of helped me do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I asked because I also grew up in Southern California, actually, mm -hmm. and I feel like I grew up with a lot of the same um, things where everyone around me was white, and I thought I was white for a really long time, mm -hmm. and then I was reading The Babysitter's Club, and there's one character that's Claudia, Claudia Kishi, right? <laughs> yeah. And so she's only mentioned in like one book, yeah. but um, I'll look through the text for like any hints of like what it means to be Asian American. Like, oh, she likes art, then like I guess I have to like art. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious, what were some little pop culture media things that you felt strongly connected to growing up, and how did that influence your Asian side versus how did you construct your quote unquote American identity? Um. Yeah, I didn't really grow up listening to like Korean music or Korean dramas or anything like that. It wasn't until high school when I started having Korean friends who were recent immigrants kind of introduced me to that side. And even then it was very much like, this is modern day Korea. This is something very separate from me. This is not mm -hmm. who I am, although I enjoyed it. Um, in media, I don't know. I feel like not to be a stereotypical like angry Asian person, but like I just have a really strong memory of um, Sandra Oh at the Emmys. Maybe it was the Oscars, but she was wearing this beautiful dress that was um, a modern interpretation of a handbook. And I thought it was like gorgeous. And then I'm like flipping through like People or some sort of celebrity magazine and they put her on like the worst dress list. It like, I don't know, it made me feel a lot of things. Like totally. ashamed of being like, okay, like this is why I didn't like this tradition of like dressing up every year. Like my parents would have us dress like this. Mm. Um, it may be like, okay, like people think this is ugly. And so I think that was definitely a moment of just, like, there is, like, an otherness. Like, I am different. Like, people don't like seeing this side of me. Um, I don't think I was... I had to hide my Asianness as much just because there were so many there, but it almost added to, like, this internal war of just, like, I'm a more Americanized Asian compared to these other Asians. And, yeah, I think that was, like, a not a great time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of um, white friends that would say kind of, offhanded like a compliment like oh you're not even that Asian or like mm. you, you're very you know you're like one of us and I, I liked that I liked being one of the group but um, yeah I've come to think of it as <laughs> a little problematic yeah. Um, yeah so actually I want to talk a bit more about the Sandra O oh dress thing I'd never sure. heard that or seen that but I think that's funny because we keep seeing instances of that happening and did you know about the um the girl that wore the Chinese dress to prom. <laughs> She's in high school. Like this happened about a year this ago. Recent. Yeah, and then just Twitter just erupted at her because I think she like did the prayer hands and everything. Was she Chinese? She was not Chinese. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. But it's it's just funny because 
Uh, we still see things like that happening, but I think our responses are shifting, and I don't. I still don't really know if it's constructive yeah. conversation around it. What do you? I think, think it definitely is. I think there's a lot more support around it. Like um, my mom visited my bar for the first time a few months ago. Um, she visited when it was under construction, but this is her first time seeing it like up and running. And I think that she was so shocked to see something that existed like this, like something that was so mean she could see that I can do something that was still very Korean but still very American and elevated and then also turning around and seeing the clientele and seeing that there were Asian Americans there there are like white people there just all kinds of people and people liking it like I think that she grew up in a time where she felt like she had to like hide it a bit more to be accepted and for mm -hmm. people to come to you instead of you begging to be a part of other people's like circle mm -hmm. so I do think that the shift is changing and it's changing faster, whether people are overreacting or weaponizing it to bully other people is another problem, but I think that at least the doorways are opening up for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's actually get back to the bar. Um, in the Grub Street article, um, they place at both ends of the Korean American spectrum, there's the entertainment driven businesses like KBBQ and karaoke. And on the other side, we have like the very elevated and kind of solemn restaurants like Attaboy and Her Name is Han. And so where do you and where does Reception Bar fit on that spectrum? I think it's kind of weird that it's put as a spectrum. I think it's just another thing that comes into existence. Like people don't ask that about other ethnic, especially like Western cuisines, like where Roberta's right now to pizza place. And there's so many different levels of like pizzerias and that's a really specific like Italian cuisine. Mm -hmm. There's like your dollar store, there's like your Joe's, there's your scars, there's your sit down. Um, I just think that there isn't enough of everything else existing that is Korean American. And so I don't think things need to be bucketized so much. I think just cause those are the only ones that existed before isn't how things should be categorized in the future mm -hmm. um yeah because i feel like that's kind of like a a scale of just like this is like mid-tier this is like high-end and i think that those are just like some attributes of an establishment i don't really think um that's how i would categorize my bar but i would say reception bar is trying to be a craft cocktail space for sure like the quality of the drinks itself, the creativeness, the care, um, the balance of flavor, I think that is really important. But at the same time, it was important for me to have all the drinks be really accessible. Um, so the price point isn't extravagant. The interior and the architecture itself is meant to be like very welcoming for people to come in and try it, be educated, have a few cocktails, you know, mm -hmm. and try to understand what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think the if I may defend the Grub Street sure. author, even though I don't know who it is. Um, oh, I love her, actually. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like it's kind of our feeble attempt to understand a cuisine very quickly. And mm -hmm. I think um, we want to know what to look for when we attend a Korean restaurant or a Korean American restaurant. So placing reception bar on the spectrum just makes it even that more easier to digest. Um, but yeah, so what do you think in our... Um, culinary media, political, whatever landscape has made it so hard and rare for non-tokenizing, non-affirming Asian representation to exist? What makes it hard? I think 
Asian Americans in general or just like Koreans? I mean, I just think Asians in general, we are like fetishized to some degree, especially in the food industry, um, about what you're expected to bring. Like Chinese food is stereotypical, you know, quick to go delivery food. Like Japanese is like more refined. And I think maybe it's a little harder because people don't know how to delve deeper or see the diversity within it. Um, and I think a lot of people are waiting for permission to do that. But at the same time, like, I think, as you mentioned before, like the times are changing. Like, um, you see younger Asian people opening up shops that have food that they love and they are not trying to like cater to anyone anymore. Like, mm -hmm. what's that new Chinese restaurant that recently opened and they serve literally like fish bladder on the menu? Like really unapologetic, like they just want to serve what they want to do and people I kind of have the guts to do it and they want to do it and they aren't trying to make something that's just going to appease to the masses so mm -hmm. I think that this is the beginning of people cooking really like from their hearts for lack of a better word like something that speaks to them and what they want to create as opposed to like a need or cooking as a means of survival mm -hmm. this is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network we'll be back about your journey on opening reception bar in a second This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So before we went to break, we were talking about um, your mom, who has recently visited your bar for the first time mm -hmm. and was very, very proud and happy to see what's happening. Um, so can you talk a bit about how you transitioned from being an options trader to opening a bar and maybe some of the projects that your mom had seen before that and her response to those? Sure. Um, I mean, from what my mom had seen, it's just mostly like I grew up from a family of five kids, so seven people total. Um, I was kind of the one that helped her with the cooking and making, you know, everyone's lunches for school the next day. Um, 
part of it was to keep me out of trouble. I was the troublemaker. <laughs> so the more chores I had, the less trouble I'd get into. Um, but I mean, I always just loved food. I was just, you know, physically the biggest one who just, I just love food, <laughs> I guess. So I think that maybe that was a little bit of a surprise that I would actually do something in food. Um, like you said, I started out first as an options trader. It's interesting. People really like to focus on that. I was an options for less than a year, okay. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, my first job out of college. Um, I studied math and stats in college. Um, and I was like, what do I do with it? Well, here's something that I could do something interesting with that. And I just kind of like bopped around different industries, trying to find something that felt fulfilling and interesting. Um, and so from there, I worked um, as a data researcher for a social policy nonprofit firm. Then after that, I worked in tech. And there was just like a day where I was just like, I'm just not happy. Like the work is interesting-ish and it's easy and the money's nice and it's a cushy job, but I just didn't want to work in the office anymore. So I literally walked in on a Tuesday and I was like, my two weeks is on another Tuesday. And they're like, you literally don't want to stay till the end of the week to get like your shares. And I'm like, I can't stay. <laughs> um, and then after that, I, I wasn't sure if I would pursue reception at all. Like reception is an idea I've had for five years at that point. Um, but it was still just like something in my dreams like oh if I won the lottery this is what I do with the money like that kind of an idea um but in my time off I just was like doing ceramics or like walking dogs and um started doing this uh dinner series in my apartment and I think that's when I was like maybe this is something I can do like people would come and it'd be like family style multi-course meal with a drink with it and during that time, it was also a time for me, like, reconnecting with a lot of my friends who, you know, either I still saw, like, pretty weekly or I hadn't seen as often, and they would start coming to these meals, and they'd be like, well, what are you doing? And I would start telling them a little bit about this dream or this idea. And from there, um, I wouldn't say I'm a networky person, but I think just living in New York for so long, you just meet such a huge array of people. And I think New Yorkers are really the nicest people. They're busy, but, you know, they will help you out if they like you. <laughs> so I just had friends who, you know, was a manager at my favorite cafe and a friend who um, worked at a craft cocktail place. And they just, like, donated the time to help me write my business plan, like, meet with investors and just kind of validate me saying, like, if you want to do this now, like, you can. And... I mean, I definitely was scared. I actually started applying for jobs again. <laughs> and then, you know, in the interview process where they're just like, you have any questions for me? And it's just like, yeah, like, what's a day in the life? <laughs> um, and they tell me, I'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I just figured, like, the only place where I can have this bar thrive right is in New York right now when I have this energy. And I just did it then. I just put my head down and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, there are plenty of times I'm just like, I can pull on now. It won't be too bad, but <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. Mm -hmm. So what were the, the early stages or the seedlings that um, were implanted about this dream? The early seedlings? Um, well, I think that Chicago experience definitely was like the first part where I had to like actually question and face my identity and what that meant. But the real idea for this bar came when I first moved to New York. Um... I feel like at that time, a lot of people 
thought that speakeasies were kind of like synonymous a really good craft cocktail drink like that's where you go um so you know when i first moved to new york i did all the touristy things i hit up every single speakeasy that i could you know find Mm -hmm. or read about and i was blown away i'm like people can create these layers and flavor and these experiences through liquid like that was so fascinating Mm -hmm. like doing that through food something solid made a little bit more like logical sense to me but being able to put that in a cup really intrigued me and then just how people are able to tell their stories through food in new york i feel like um like i mentioned or not here um, one of my favorite speakeasies is angel share and in their earlier menus uh the mixologist would write little stories about each drink like this one is inspired from you know a trip from napa or this is like something from my childhood and i was like that's crazy like these drinks really tell a story about him if you if you knew it but on their own they're also like amazing drinks um and then i started thinking about like how i wanted to tell my own story through food because food is just such a way to keep your family tradition and history alive like like how oral tradition oral stories um are passed down like food evolves and it brings in like the heritage and your history and it evolves through like where that family is now and what food they're exposed to right then and there and what they like um and I thought that was really cool and I thought why aren't there places that personify who I am like there's so many people like me um and the only options I have really right now is really K-Town at that point it was like I can get barbecue I can get traditional stew Um, And it will hit the spot, but it hit the spot like going home to grandma's. But there wasn't anything that would go there and be like, yeah, like, that's me. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do that. Right, right. That's actually how I feel about um, bubble tea, which like I also did not discover until I was older and Uh like maybe high school. And um, it was my Chinese language class. And they're like, oh, we're all going to get bubble tea for a field trip. Mm -hmm. And I'm just drinking this like, this is pretty good, but this doesn't feel like me. And like, I've never grown up with this and Mm -hmm. I don't know like the culture around this. So that's really interesting that you feel that way too. Um, so why um, why did you name it Reception Bar? Good question. <laughs> Reception Bar, it has a lot of different meanings. Um, I guess on a really superficial note, I love wedding receptions. <laughs> people call them corny or whatever it is, but if you think about it, people have this whole team to create a moment, or create um, an environment that feels welcoming Um, and just like glows of beauty and I wanted to emulate that at my bar Mm -hmm. not the flowers or like the corniness of a wedding but just that feeling of warmth and just a really like magical atmosphere I think that sometimes it's hard to find that in New York or at least something that's like really easily accessible I think that's it Mm -hmm. at the end of the day Um, and then reception also has um, the word reception like to receive something and that kind of works twofold. Um, for me, on a personal note, it's like what it means to like receive your culture, to like love it, and how you can coexist with that as a part of you. And on the other side, it's for my patrons, for them to like sit there and drink the drinks and kind of like understand where I'm coming from, and you know maybe be a little bit more educated about like these people who live among them. Mm-hmm. And so you also choose um, to limit your hours as well as days so can you talk a bit about that choice as well um mondays are closed just to keep my sanity <laughs> fair totally <laughs> and fair. just you know from a business point of view like a lot of people don't really go out on monday 
Um, we're actually opening up more into the daytime in the next week or two. Um, but that was definitely a conscious choice. I really wanted to bring my hours into the daytime. I didn't really want to go past midnight because um, I feel like because I, there's so much I'm trying to do with these drinks, I don't really want to serve it to people who just want to get drunk. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the clientele in the late evenings. Like they're not here to get it. And they're probably actually here to fetishize what I'm trying to do. Like, oh, there's this new hip thing or this new fad and I, I, I'm I not here for that and so I really want to bring it out of nightlife and into the daytime and be a real like daytime spot that people can also go to um, and why not drink in the daytime yeah. <laughs> no and what I'm um, so I, I went and um, what I was especially taken aback was the amount of menu space dedicated to non-alcoholic drinks which um, me and Julia really, really appreciated. And so can you talk a bit about that concept, um, what a healing or a wellness elixir is and where those flavor combinations came from? Sure. So the elixirs on our menu, it takes about half of our menu space. Um, I'll share this with our snacks, but there are drinks that are non-alcoholic um, and we list their health benefits, kind of how our grandparents would talk about the wellness of something. Um, like, for example, we have the buckwheat bubbly and that has buckwheat tea, chrysanthemum tea, some goji syrup, and lemon. And what it does is it increases your blood flow, and that wakes you up without caffeine. And at the same time, you have chrysanthemum, which de-stresses you, so you don't get that jitteriness that caffeine gives for people who are a little bit sensitive to that. Um, Gojis are really great for your brain health, so like all these things kind of like work together. So um, that was a really fun project, just kind of like piecing together all these like little tidbits I've known, like things that were told to me over and over again, you know, when you're not feeling right or, you know, you need a boost to something like my grandma or my mom would be like, just drink this. And it's mm-hmm. like, OK, um, interesting, though, when I was uh, about to open the bar, I was doing research on these ingredients and the science is kind of proving what, you know, we already know, which is cool. But I didn't really want it to be like a sciencey aspect. It's still is something that's still very part of me and I also wanted the drinks to read like a cocktail like being really well balanced not overly sweet um, really refreshing and I feel like it's hard to find non-alcoholic drinks that kind of hit those kinds of spots in nightlife that something that they put a little bit more like refinement to it and care for it um, so I just really want to be able to highlight that yeah it must have been a really great opportunity to also kind of reconnect with your mom and your grandma and talk about totally. those things because my mom also um, now that I'm away from home she'll say like oh you make sure you like mix the like north almond with the south almond when you make chicken soup or something like that and like we do not listen to that when we're little right, right? but now that we're on our own it's like I've been so really yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, wait um, I'm at the store they all look the same which yeah. one is it um, but oh, yeah, totally. I take pictures of packaging. Be like, mom, what what does it say? Am I right. getting the right one? Yeah, and all the labeling just says nut or almond. Right, just right. Like, oh, <laughs> ugh, should have learned. Um, but yeah, so um, back to the elixirs. Was it a conscious choice to name them elixirs, despite the the fighting against fetishization? Is elixir a fetish word? Um, I, I feel like it kind of, in some spheres, might speak to the whole like mysticism or just spirituality I wasn't seeing it as part of a spiritual side I just didn't want to use a western term for it like yeah. I didn't want to use tonic right. or something like that um, so maybe it is a little mystic in that way 
But yeah, maybe it's because I played a little bit of Zelda. They have elixirs there too. <laughs> I'm not really sure. <laughs> so, non-culturally dependent. This right. is all from Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you were talking a bit about um, being really conscious about making balanced cocktails. Um, what elements do you think make a successful cocktail, let alone a successful Korean-American cocktail? A successful cocktail, I think on the physicalness, it has to have a little acid. It has to have a little bit something interesting that pulls you in. Um, but I, I don't know. I think I like to talk more in terms of like feelings. Like a good cocktail, it makes you want to drink it. It makes you salivate for it. And so when you drink it, it both satiates you but makes you want to have more. Hmm. I think that's what a good cocktail is. It just makes you want to You're just like another. Like that's hmm. the kind of feeling a cocktail should have. Um, and that's also how oftentimes I talk about my cocktails with my customers. If they're like, I don't know what any of these things mean. What should I have? I typically ask them, like, what are you feeling? Like, you want something really elegant. You want something playful. You want something, you know, with a little, like, spice and a little fun. And from there, I like to recommend a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, when I first moved to New York City, I went to Angel Share. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this one cocktail that tasted like green curry. Really? And, and it was the, the thing where it was like, oh, this is so interesting. But, like, I did not want to keep drinking it. Mm. But um, when I visited your bar, the mushroom one. It just kept pulling me back. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk um, about some of the beverages on your menu for our listeners who have not been? Sure. Um, I would say our signature drink is called the Lotus Breeze. Um, We take soju as our base and we infuse some wild white lotus tea in it. So we get this really high quality white lotus from Korea. We infuse it into our soju. And soju is just a really great vehicle for pulling out these really delicate flavors. Because the nature of soju is that it's a distilled liquor. Um, from rice, so kind of similar to vodka. Um, and from there, we have some green plum syrup to kind of give it a little sweetness, a little spunkiness, um, a little bit of acid, and we top it off with some sparkling chrysanthemum tea. So this is tea that we cold brew in-house, and we sparkle it um, to have a little bit of you know shimmer and fun, but also balance out the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of drinks we have we have one called the toasty that one's a really fun one we um, get soju and we infuse it with sesame oil a process is called washing the soju um, and we make it in-house rice orjat so orjat is a syrup made traditionally from almonds but we use it from rice instead it has a nice floral notes to it as well um, we uh, burn I guess uh, buckwheat to kind of smoke the glass, get a little crunchiness, a little bit of um, that charcoaliness that really grounds a drink. Um, and we sprinkle that over the ice cream that we put in there. And the ice cream we get is Nuna's ice cream. So that's from a Korean American ice cream vendor here in Brooklyn. She's really great. She works a lot of like Korean flavors, and this ice cream is amazing. <laughs> so good. Um, so we have that, and you just, it's like a affogato. You could, eat it with a spoon you could drink it let it wait for it to melt and for me it's just my summer camping trips in a cup i'm so mad i didn't get that or didn't <laughs> see that on the menu because that is my type of it might dessert. be new we're literally adding and removing drinks all the time to mm-hmm. people's dismay but also excitement mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so you also i think this was also in an interview you respond or fight against the use of Asian ingredients or delegation of Asian ingredients just to elegant garnishes um, by featuring them in this really interesting way. So can you talk about that kind of reckoning? 
Well, I think that there was a little bit of frustration if you go to like an Asian place and they're just like, oh, we're having um, these drinks and it's just like a play on traditional drinks and they just like switch out one ingredient for mm. an Asian ingredient. And I'm just like, well, what are you doing that for? Like, you can do something new. Um, those are old and tried and true recipes for a reason. And if you want to do something different, go all the way. And there's a treasure trove of all these different ingredients and flavors that just aren't experienced by the mass people. Like how you mentioned before, like Korean barbecues or um, those kinds of Korean restaurants, people know those flavors. They know what like a kalbi marinade tastes like. They know what kimchi tastes like, but it's like, do you know what buckwheat tastes like? Like, do, do you know what a Korean pear is and why is that different from a Western pear? And like, what we try to do is we try to preserve all those different characteristics um, by making it into a shrub. And we feature in quite a few of our drinks as well. And um, I just really want to highlight all these drinks and all these differences because I think that they're interesting and I want it to be a part of people's vocabulary. Like, I'd go to Korean restaurants today and they'll call a drink that has yuja in it, which is a cousin to yuzu, and just straight up call it yuzu, because people know what yuzu is, mm -hmm. but they don't know what yuja is, and they're like, okay, this is approachable. And I'm just like, no, it's totally different. It tastes mm -hmm. different, it's used differently. Um, and so I just really wanted to like stand by that and just to highlight them in my drinks. And I think that's how I approach most of my drinks, which might be kind of different from most mixologists. I think I approach it maybe in a more like a chef-like way where, mm -hmm. I see this ingredient that I really want to highlight and I build the whole drink around that. Like everything else is a supporting feature. So even when I have an ingredient in there that isn't Korean, it's not the star. It's not what you're supposed to focus on. It's really to uplift and um, bring out the best of the ingredient I'm trying to highlight. Mm -hmm. And so what about your Korean American experience are you trying to convey through these drinks and what do you hope is being understood by, your, by the customer? Through these drinks, I think that um, these flavor profiles are things that I love and I want people to be educated and know them as well. But maybe how they're presented is very American in a way. Like I think um, American craft cocktail bars, they um, want to hit these certain parts of the palate that I feel like are maybe different than what you find in Korea. Like I feel like it's a little bit more... Um, subtle and delicate there and I have some drinks like that but I also have some drinks that are really like punch you in the face with flavor mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah so I think another really interesting thing is like these are not drinks that you would find in Korea or you right. wouldn't find these anywhere else and so right. how do you how do you feel about that like how how do you then explain that to like your family or to to other customers who then may feel like they leave your restaurant knowing more about Korean culture um, well, I say to people, come and try it. <laughs> like, I, I can only say it in so many words, and I don't think there's a better way to explain it unless you experience it. And I think that's what it is. It's like, this is an embodiment of my experience as a Korean American, and I want you to try it. Like, mm -hmm. be a part of it for a second. And although I know, like, right now it's probably pretty unique, um, I want there to be more of them. Like, I want other people to feel empowered to kind of show their own story. Um, like when I was building the bar, I was working with the Korean American architect, Moran, and she um, immigrated with her family to Hawaii, then to New York. 
And at first we're like, this is so cool. It's like a project. It's going to like bring out so much of us. And as we're doing it, we realized how much differences we actually had. Mm. And it was cool because she, you know, spent a lot of time to get to know me and my story and my feelings about it. And I got to know a little bit more about her. And I was like, you should do something that embodies you. Mm. And yeah, I think that there are definitely times when we would like butt heads and certain things and it's because we had different perspectives and mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing and I want there to be more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so can you explain the concept for the, the design of the bar? Um, so you're saying that space feels more reflective of her experience or no. it's, it's still yours? Yes, it's okay. mine. <laughs> it's mine. So um, the bar, I would say, um, it was interesting how you brought up Miami vibes. A couple of people have brought that to me. I've never been to Miami. I don't really know what the... Yeah that vibes um, is supposed to look like, for me, it feels like a SoCal Korean-American vibe. Like, Mm -hmm. I literally have, like, you know, little gems, like a cactus up in front, some, like, cactus sculptures around the bar edge. Um, Just, like, the really clean and, like, brightness of the bar. Um, And from the architectural standpoint, having those different geometric shapes kind of help with the the glow and the feel of it. But, Mm -hmm. um, like, that false wall that we have in the front is to kind of evoke a Korean garden, but modernized in a way. So um, the idea is that it's like a little secret Korean American garden. You go in there and like the fruits of the garden are in your cup. So, you know, there's all these like individual ingredients you might be familiar with, but it's presented to you in a different way. Mm-hmm. What um, what Southern Californian Korean influences are in the bar? Because now I'm curious, I, I want to erase the, the Miami... <laughs> Perception. Um, well, I think that maybe some people think that uh, the shades of like pink and orange feel very Miami-ish, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, those are actually pulled from like the banquettes are kind of like this orangey uh, color. And that is actually pulled from an old scroll painting of a mm-hmm. Korean nobleman. And he's wearing obviously the traditional Korean clothing, the hanbok. And uh, first of all, it's a beautiful color. And then second of all, I kind of liked how Koreans didn't really genderized clothing color as much color meant different things like power and wealth of course um but it's just a color that's just a color that i think is really great and some people take it away and feel like it's very feminine but that's their own (laughs) perspective um yeah no and i think like um while your menu is like you said like punch you in the face very different and exciting and really challenging i feel Mm -hmm. like um, as cringy as it is, the the bar is highly quote unquote Instagrammable, right? And mm-hmm. I think people love that, and you pull in a lot of that crowd. And how do you think our relationship to taste and hunger um, is changing because of social media? Well, I think even before social media, like food and drink should look good before you drink or eat it. Um, it should look good with your eyes first, and. And the first time I heard that was actually from a Japanese friend of mine. And they're like, this is just like how Japanese people view food. And I'm like, that's beautiful. That's great. And then it kind of became this whole like social media side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's a way to like spread the word and make it look good to have um, to drink or to want to drink. Like, that's great. But I mean, I think I'd care more about like the words that are written about it, like people's experiences and being able to share that across social media. I think that's great, too. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it is a little bit of a pet peeve if someone's coming in there just to have like a photo shoot moment and they order drinks and have a photo shoot moment and they don't even t- 
touch their drinks. That does irk me a bit, but it's just the state of the world right now, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so there is a very limited food menu, um, which I love the, the few food options that you chose. So can you talk about why you chose those? And um, yeah, any exciting menu additions to look out for? Sure. So our food menu probably has changed since the last time you've been there. Um, we keep it small because the focus is the drinks. Um, that's what I'm passionate about. And also it's a really small space. We don't have a kitchen. We do all of our prep in-house. Um, we have chapche mandu. So mandu is the Korean word form for dumpling. And chapche is these glass noodles. I think it's just like a fun way to um, have a vehicle for the noodles, like a little pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't think there are very many dumplings out there that have noodles in there that other people are exposed to. I think a lot of us Asians know of these dumplings, mm-hmm. but you know they're not really at Vanessa's or anything like that. And they're... Um, kind of square and rectangular which is a little different maximal crispiness right yeah. right and it's just such a korean way to like present dumplings like we have all kinds of different dumpling shapes and like well people haven't really seen this and this is something that i've grown up with so i'm gonna i'm gonna serve it mm-hmm. um and we serve that with this like soy sauce um blend that's like soy sauce and rice vinegar and korean red pepper powder and green onions and a little bit of sweetness and that's just a flavor profile that i grew up with and i think it just really complements it really well mm-hmm. um something that's a little you know from left field is we have a gazpacho on the menu oh new yeah new new it's great for summer um it's just that is definitely a nod to like the mediterranean and mexican flavors from la mm-hmm. like gazpacho to me is like a cold salsa soup but um less aggressively seasoned so you could drink it (laughs) as opposed to just using it as you know a sauce um and we add in some korean peppers because korean peppers have a little bit more um vegetable flavor for it a little bit more citrusy a little extra punch to it um we season it with some other like korean ingredients as well and serve it with some puffed um, sesame rice crackers as mm. opposed to you know the traditional like croutons or um, bread from mm-hmm. Spain and I think that that is kind of a fun thing to showcase because this is just food that I like and I just want to serve food that I like mm-hmm. and I think that like when I travel around there are definitely like certain places that I can travel to and I'm like I can eat for weeks and months and not feel bad but certain other places it's just something that I'm not accustomed to and I'm just like I just want kimchi right now yeah um and so like when I go to Mexico or to Portugal or something like that those are just flavor profiles that I like and I can just like eat forever and feel like it hits all the spots for me and I think that made me think about like well this is a part of like my food history now that I'm gonna pass down it's like these are flavors that I like and now is a part of my family tree history, whether it's like 100% Korean authentic or not, because I'm not in Korea anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so are there um, new menu additions that you're thinking of or inspirations that you want to yes. convert into menu additions? So there's this Korean melon called a chame. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a yellow, long, small melon, mm-hmm. white flesh inside. It's kind of like a cucumber and a honeydew had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my favorite fruits ever, and I'm still surprised how people don't know what it is. It's in season right now, um, so I'm just working right now with my vendor relationships, and hopefully I can get some and add a couple cocktails and elixirs for that. Um, when I was working on this menu in the summertime a few years ago, um, 
there's an elixir on there called Revitalizing Toraji. So Toraji is bellflower root, and we make a tea out of that. We have some chame, um, a few other ingredients. I won't give away <laughs> quite yet, but it's one of my favorite elixirs, so hopefully mm-hmm. that's going to be coming on the menu very soon. And so how do you, um, how do you capture a melon flavor into a drink? I feel like that's very difficult. Um, for in this case, I just juice it. <laughs> just to, um, It's just so great juiced. and Because um, when you eat it, the texture is kind of cucumbery. Mm-hmm. You, I don't think you could taste it as well. And then the secret of making really good cocktails, you want to just concentrate all the flavors so you can mix them all together without diluting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the nature of chame is when you juice it, all that pulp comes out and the juice that's left is super flavorful. Mm. So it's kind of like the opposite what I do with the Korean pear. Like I wouldn't juice the Korean pear um, because if I juice it, it just tastes like a regular pear. And I'm like, mm. it's lost its essence and I want to keep that juiciness from it. So that one I turn into a shrub. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect way to end our episode. The moral of the story is just <laughs> buy in-season fruit and juice it. It's right. very simple. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.